the reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of, uh, uh, sorry, not from the Gospel, from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, reading from verses 1 to 7. And in the Church Bible, this can be found on page 868. If you have a hardcover version, you'll find that on page 269. So 1 John, chapter 1, reading from verses 1 to 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. May the Lord bless the teaching and reading of his word. Good, thank you, Michelle, very much indeed. Well, let's, uh, let's pray as we come to this passage. Heavenly Father, you have shown us that a living church is a learning church. Please will you send your Holy Spirit to give us listening ears this morning and attentive hearts so that we can understand what it means to live in your limitless love and your measureless grace. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Good, well, take a moment uh, to think back over the last week, the week you have just had. Uh, If you're a Christian, uh, on how many mornings did you wake up and think, what a wonderful day it is, how marvellous it is to be a Christian, and to know that I'm absolutely secure in the love of God. On how many days this past week were you consciously thankful to God for your brothers and sisters at church, uh, for their fellowship, for their encouragement and for their example? Uh, How often did you find yourself rejoicing in the amazing victory that Christ has won for you? Uh, The victory over sin, over evil and, of course, ultimately over death itself. Well, I expect, and I sincerely hope, that some of you did indeed have a week rather like that. But perhaps for others, it was one of those weeks when you felt defeated. Defeated by circumstances, uh, overwhelmed by all kinds of doubts and insecurities. And if it was... How did that affect your relationships? Were were you patient and kind? 
Or were you perhaps short-tempered and fractious? And what about your relationship with God? Did you make time to read the Bible and pray? Or did your time alone with God get squeezed out as other priorities came in and took over? And if you had one of those weeks, might there even have been a moment when you found yourself asking, well, I wonder if I'm really a Christian at all. And if you're not a Christian, but perhaps starting to think seriously about Christian things, then let me ask you, what do you think of the Christians you know? What do they look like to you? Are they different from other people? Are they confident in their convictions and living lives that reflect those convictions? Well, I imagine that some of us are sometimes, but I imagine you might also say, well, to be perfectly honest, Simon, it's not always obvious. How can I tell whether the Christians I know are the real deal or not? Now, I start with this this morning to make the point that there is a very real tension in the Christian life. And sooner or later, every Christian has to face it. The tension is that on the one hand, the Bible tells us that to belong to Jesus is to be absolutely secure in the love of God. It is to have a wonderful hope for the future and to be marvellously protected in the present. But, in the trenches of daily experience, it does often seem, doesn't it, as if those things are not true. Because the, the difficulties and disappointments of life sometimes seem to be the only reality. And to make matters worse, other people with different takes on spiritual matters sometimes seem to be rather more on top of their game than you are. Now, if that sounds familiar, well, welcome to the world of 1 John. God has given us this marvellous little letter at the end of the New Testament to help us think about this tension from his perspective which, of course, in the end, is the only perspective that counts. Now, as you know, uh, for the last few weeks, we've actually been in a series in the Gospel of John, where we've been discovering what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. And now, here in John's first letter, which was actually written only a few years after the Gospel, we find John using exactly the same language to describe Almighty God. You'll find this in verse 5 of the passage that Michelle read for us, where John says, this is the message we heard from him, that is the message we heard from Jesus, and proclaim to you, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Now, if you're a a regular, uh, then you'll remember that this is actually one of the greatest theological statements about God in all of Scripture. Unfortunately, we haven't got time this morning to say everything we need to say about it, 
Uh, If you want to explore it more fully, uh, you can listen to the tape on our website. But one of the things that this great statement is doing is pointing to God as the unique source of all truth and revelation. So, uh, to give an illustration, when you go into a room, you switch on the light to see what's there. You wouldn't know otherwise. You could make an inspired guess, but when you go into the room to look for the car keys or whatever it is, unless you turn the light on and there isn't uh, stage three load shedding, well, you won't actually find what you're looking for and you'll only stub your toe. No, it's only when you turn the light on that you see things as they really are. It's what the psalmist means when he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What's he saying? He's saying to God, your word shows me life as it really is. And without it, I wouldn't know and I would only get into the most appalling difficulties. And this letter of 1 John is a perfect example of the principle. It shows us the reality of the Christian life. So in those moments when the the difficulties and disappointments of life seem to be the only reality, we can turn to this marvellous letter again and again and be reminded that is simply not true. Because John shows us that the Christian has been brought into a reality that is infinitely wonderful and absolutely certain. A reality that he or she will enjoy forever because it has been secured by the precious blood of Jesus. Now, uh, before Christmas, uh, we got about as far as the middle of chapter 4, but because that was uh, rather a long time ago, and for the benefit of those who weren't with us then, what we're going to do this morning is take a helicopter ride over the whole of the letter to remind ourselves of the major landmarks. And then, God willing, next Sunday morning, we'll be able to pick up, pick up where we left off in December with, I hope, some idea of the main message. So, fasten your seatbelts and let's look briefly at the three main characteristics of Christian experience that John describes in his letter. Uh, And I hope as we do this that we're going to be greatly encouraged this morning and able to stay focused in all the ups and downs of daily living. And as always, you'll find these three characteristics are printed for you on the inside of the bulletin. Firstly, we're going to see the confidence we enjoy. And then I'm going to say something about the pressure that we face. And then thirdly, very briefly at the end, the truth we proclaim. So firstly then, let's think about the confidence we enjoy. Now, I'm finding that as I prepare these studies in 1 John, that this is fast becoming one of my favourite letters in the Bible. And I hope it will become one of yours as well. But if that's going to happen, 
we have to hear John rightly and we have to get used to his style because it's very different from anything else in scripture. When you and I sit down to write a letter or an email or whatever it is, we start by telling uh, whoever it is why we're writing. We give the purpose right up front. But John doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't state his purpose until chapter 5 and verse 13. Now, regulars, I think, already know this verse extremely well and don't need to look it up. But I would like everybody this morning to just look at it because it is so very important. 1 John 5.13 If you and I ask the Apostle John, tell us, John, why did you write this letter? John replies, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is the purpose of this letter. John wants every Christian to know for sure that they have eternal life. Now friends, this is actually where the rubber hits the road because it makes it so very clear what Christianity is not. See, Christianity is not a philosophy. Uh, It's not a way of thinking to help you and me live slightly happier lives. Equally, Christianity is not a fast pass to health, wealth and happiness. God may give us these blessings or he may not. The thing is, he doesn't promise them in the Gospel. What God does promise in the Gospel is eternal life. That is, a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, starting here and continuing beyond the grave. It is a real, personal conscious relationship with God, the creator of the universe, as our loving Heavenly Father. And that relationship is so secure it cannot be ruptured even by death. That's what eternal life is. And John says that every Christian can know for sure that they have it they can be absolutely confident about it. But of course, I'm sure you can see the problem. Because, of course, it's such a terribly easy thing to say, isn't it? How can we really know for sure? After all, that God is invisible. Even if he can see me, I certainly can't see him. So how can I be sure this relationship is real? How can I know that I really do have eternal life? And so we say, John, you're going to have to give me some real evidence to work with. And John says, of course, I quite understand. I'm going to give you three tests or proofs, things that you can apply to yourself that will give you all the evidence you need. Now, Before I tell you what these tests are, I need to tell you that they come with a health warning. 
Because these tests are not designed to reveal your weaknesses. No, used in the right way, they're a wonderful tool designed to build real confidence into every Christian. But of course, as you all know perfectly well, it's perfectly possible to use a good tool in the wrong way. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, A ministry colleague called Andy uh, worked for a time in a sports shop in the centre of Glasgow. Uh, It was a rather rough area and uh, one day a big man uh, came into the shop. Uh, His head was shaved to a crew cut and he had tattoos all over his body. And he approached Andy and in a very strong uh, Glasgow accent, which I dare not imitate, he said, can I get a baseball bat? Which translated means, please would you show me your extensive range of baseball equipment. So uh, Andy showed him a few bats and this large man started trying them out, swinging them in a rather menacing way. Uh, There wasn't even the remotest hint of baseball technique. And after a few minutes, he found one that he seemed to like and he went to the checkout to pay. And uh, Andy very politely asked him, "Uh, Sir, would you like a ball to go with your bat? And uh, the big man stood there just gently slapping the bat into the palm of his hand and he said, No, the bat will suffice. Now the point of that story is that you can use a baseball bat to do a number of things. And rightly used, it's a terrific piece of sports equipment. But when you use it for hitting things other than baseballs, well, of course, it can do a very great deal of damage. The same is true of these three tests in 1 John. They are a great tool but we need to use them in the way that John intended. And John hasn't given them to us either so that we beat ourselves up or even worse, beat one another up. So, now that you have the health warning, what are these tests? Well, the first is the belief test. The belief test. Do you believe the right things about Jesus. That's actually the theme of the opening verses of the letter which Michelle read for us a moment ago and I'll say more about them in a moment. The second is the moral test. Do you obey God's commands? If you're taking notes, then chapter 2 verse 3 is a terrific verse on that. And the third is the love test. Do you love the other Christians at church? Chapter 3, verse 14 is just one of many verses in the letter that address that subject. Now, what's so special about these tests? Why are they so helpful? You see, negatively, John is not saying... Are you doing these things perfectly? He is not saying that. Rather, the point that he's making is these things are completely unnatural. By nature, 
you and I do not believe the truth about Jesus. By nature, you and I do not obey his commands. And by nature, we don't love other Christians. Isn't that right? Of course it is. Of course it is. So you see, the point is, if these things are happening in your life, even in a small way, well, that is proof that God is really at work in you. And here's the thing. As John looks around the churches in Asia Minor and he thinks about all of his friends and the pastors serving in the churches and so on, he sees plenty of people to whom these tests must have given tremendous confidence. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because of the wonderful poem in the middle of chapter 2. You see, John starts his letter by telling us what it means to be a Christian and then as he thinks about all his friends in the churches, he bursts into song. Now, just look at this little song with me. And as I read it, please will you notice how overwhelmingly positive it is. Chapter 2, verse 12, John says, I write to you, dear children, by the way, children there, that's his word for Christians in the churches, I write to you Christians because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Can you see there isn't the remotest suggestion of anything negative in that poem. John has no word of criticism for his readers. There's nothing whatsoever to cause them to feel uncertain. And if we were setting this poem to music, the key would be major, not minor. The mood is not anxious, but confident. And friends, that is how it is with every real Christian today. So, the real Christian can be absolutely confident that he or she has, present tense, has eternal life. That is the first big theme in this letter. But unfortunately, it's not all plain sailing because secondly, John warns us about the pressure we face. The pressure we face. Now, in this month's edition of the Open Doors newsletter, which we handed out last week, I, I was reading the harrowing story of uh, the Christian couple in Pakistan who lost, I think it was five members of their family and a baby boy when suicide bombers entered their church in, I think, December 2013. And I think we all know, don't we, that Christians in the third world are increasingly on the receiving end of that kind of pressure. 
very real, very agonising. But it is pressure from outside the Christian camp. And here in 1 John, John is describing pressure from within. Because a group of people had left the churches that John is writing to, and that by itself, of course, is not terribly unusual. People leave churches for all kinds of reasons, perhaps because they have a new job or the family relocates to a new city or whatever it is. But for these people, John has some very strong words indeed. Come with me to verse 18 of chapter 2. Verse 18. Dear children, says John, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, friends, that language is very strong indeed, isn't it? Um, If you're going to go around calling people antichrist, well, then you've got to be very certain of your ground, haven't you? And uh, these days, you probably need a jolly good lawyer as well. So why does John describe these people in such a radical way? Well, evidently, these people hadn't departed quietly. Their departure had caused lots of confusion and much unhappiness among those left behind. And although they're only mentioned in chapter 2 directly, the fingerprints of these people are all over the whole letter. So why did they cause so much upset? In a word, these people claimed to be superior. In order to see this, we actually have to do a little bit of detective work. We need to look at what John has written and ask ourselves why he says things in the way that he does. So, for example, I want to suggest that these people were claiming a superior purity. A superior purity. Come with me to chapter 1, verse 8. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, you've said that verse a hundred times, a thousand times. Just think about it through fresh spectacles for a moment. Why does John even need to say that to a group of Christians? I mean, it's so obvious. If you're a real Christian, you would never, never say that. But John has to say it because that's precisely what the troublemakers were claiming. And of course, when people claim victory over sin and leave the church, that is going to be very unsettling for those who remain behind. Secondly, and far, actually far, far more serious, these people were claiming a superior spirituality. And here, the clue is in John's use of the word antichrist. Why does John use that word? What's he trying to tell us? 
Well, unfortunately, the, the only place where the word Antichrist appears in the Bible is in the letters of John. Uh, and even here, it only appears five times in four verses, so we don't have a great deal of biblical data to work with. And to make matters worse, of course, the fixation of the film industry with the supernatural means that as soon as somebody starts talking about an Antichrist, everybody's imagining mythical, repulsive monsters like from the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or whatever it is. But actually, I think that John is actually warning us about something very human and very down to earth. Something that is actually right under our noses here in Cape Town. Now, why do I say that? Well, the prefix anti can actually mean one of two things. It can mean the opposite of. Uh, we find that, don't we, in a word like antisocial, or if you're a doctor, antiseptic, or antibody. You'll be able to think of other examples. Now, taking that meaning, some people have understood the word antichrist to mean the complete opposite of Christ. Uh, so the, the, the reformer Martin Luther, who was never much of a man to mince his words, was often in the habit of referring to the Pope as Antichrist, not a way to get invited to dinner at the Vatican. But the prefix anti can also mean instead of or substitute, a substitute for. And the context here very strongly suggests that that's what John has in mind. What he means is that these people had such defective views about Jesus Christ that what they were actually worshipping was a substitute Christ. A Christ of their own imagination. And John is saying that one of the pressures that Christians are going to have to face in every generation is dealing with people like that. But who are they? How are we going to recognise them? How will we know how to deal with them? Well, John tells us four things about them. First, in verse 18, he tells us there, there are lots of them. He actually says it in a very striking way. Can you see it in verse 18? First he says that Antichrist is coming. That, of course, is a reference to the devil. But then he says, many Antichrists have come. Now the connection, you see, is that the devil is already exercising his influence through these people, and there are many of them. Now, we all know, don't we, that one troublemaker is uh, hard enough to deal with. But when you've got a whole army of them, well, that can be very intimidating indeed, can't it? Second, as we've just said, in verse 19, we're told that these people arose from within the church. He says they went out from us. Now, think about that. These people had actually been sitting in church for months, quite possibly years. Perhaps they'd been elders in the church or serving in Sunday school or maybe even handling the church's finances. 
No one imagined for one moment that they would turn out to be troublemakers. The third hallmark of these antichrists is in verse 26, where John says that rather than just going quietly and decently and just going on to the next place, they were trying to lead others astray, both spiritually and no doubt physically as well. In other words, they felt they had to justify their actions by encouraging other people to follow their example. But fourth, and of course this is the most serious of all, these people had a false view of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, John says that they denied that Jesus is the Christ. Now, of course, to a 21st century audience, that doesn't tell us a great deal. So, in order to find out what these people actually believed, we have to just turn over a couple of pages to John's second letter and page 872. To John, page 872, verse 7. This is so important. I I really do want you to take this this verse to heart and think about the implications for yourself. Verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ, and here it is, as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now let's think about this. You see, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, well, you're denying the incarnation, aren't you? So there's no Christmas. No Christmas. But it's more serious than that, isn't it? Because if you deny the incarnation, then you deny the atonement as well. Because if Jesus didn't come into the world as a human being, he couldn't represent us. And he couldn't be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, Easter goes out of the window as well. Now, you and I may not know people who've done that in so many words, but I tell you what, that kind of false teaching is everywhere today. What is it? It's Christianity without the cross. It's everywhere. How do we recognise these people? Well, I tell you what, it's, it's the person who worships Jesus the legalist, or Jesus the life coach, or Jesus the financial advisor, and yes, there are people who do that, or Jesus the political activist. Anything, in fact, except Jesus as our Saviour and Lord. So that's the pressure we face. And of course it means, doesn't it, that it is vitally important that we hold on to the third characteristic of authentic Christian experience, which I'm only going to have time to mention very briefly, and we'll have to talk about it in the home groups during the week. But this is the truth we proclaim. Now you'll find this in the very first verse of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. While you're turning there, let me tell you that a Christian friend of mine in London enjoys telling the story of the time when he was having lunch with a businessman, a senior businessman, 
And he asked him, do you believe in God? And feeling rather pleased with himself, the businessman replied, oh no, oh no. I can only believe in something if I can see it, hear it, or touch it. And uh, when I hear that story, it tells me that that businessman hadn't read 1 John. Just look at the first verse and notice the verbs again. That which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, John is making the point, isn't he, that the Christian faith is grounded on hard evidence given to the apostles. They were given a unique knowledge of Jesus and this knowledge came to them through several channels. The first is the ears. John says they heard him. And just to make sure we understand what he means, he says the same thing slightly differently in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. Now that's really important. Because, you see, the apostles didn't learn about Jesus and his message from a third party. These words they heard came directly to them from the lips of Jesus and they have preserved them for us in the pages of the New Testament. The second channel through which John and the other apostles gained their knowledge of Jesus was with their eyes. In verse 1, John says, we have seen with our eyes. Now, no doubt, uh, he's thinking there especially of the, the miracles and the signs that Jesus performed, signs which demonstrated his divine power. The apostles were there, they saw what happened. But surely, he's also thinking of that unique experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when the veil was drawn back and, and Peter and James and John were permitted to see Jesus in all his glory. And when John saw Jesus blazing white in the glory cloud, he knew for sure he was not someone to be trifled with. And thirdly, John says we actually touched him with our hands. That, of course, is the most intimate experience you can have with another human being. And surely, John is here thinking of that astonishing moment after the crucifixion, when the apostles were all huddled together, terrified in the upper room, and suddenly Jesus appeared to them. And what did Jesus say? He said, look at my hands and feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh as you see that I have. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is that in the very first verse, John is making the point very clear that we can have complete confidence in the gospel. The offer of eternal life is genuine because it is based on solid evidence 
The experience of seeing and hearing and touching somebody who went through death, rose from the grave, is alive today, and the apostles saw him, heard him, touched him. And the evidence given to them convinced them, convinced all of them, that the offer of eternal life is real, that they could trust it. And because they could trust it, they proclaimed it boldly. What about us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that your word is so very practical and down to earth, that it speaks to every challenge we face, every discouragement, every disappointment. When the difficulties come, please will you help us to fix our minds on that far greater reality that we are your dearly loved children to whom you have given the precious gift of eternal life. And all because Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Hear our prayer. Amen.